Welcome once again to another edition of Mets at the Movies, the podcast that talks about movies from celluloid to digital and everything in between. And on today's episode, we're doing something a little special. I'm going to be talking about 10 of my favorite documentaries about the film industry, whether they're about a specific movie, a part of the film industry, um, a specific person, just anything related to them. Because for some every time I see a new one, I find them so fascinating and so interesting. And there's so many of them out there um, that these 10 are just the ones that I've seen. You may have some that you've love and you love uh watching and talking about that i haven't seen i know one of the biggest ones out there is lost in la mancha i know a lot of people i hear talk about that and they love it i haven't seen it yet and i'm interested because i love documentaries about films and the film industry so we're going to kick this off now there's this isn't in any order whatsoever this is just in the order that i can remember them and I have them listed down. Again, no particular order. This isn't 1 through 10. It's just my 10 favorite that I've seen. And we're going to start off with Side by Side. Now, Side by Side is a documentary that was made by Keanu Reeves about the differences between digital filmmaking and celluloid filmmaking using literal film. And What's amazing about this is getting to see the behind the scenes uh, part of what makes a film look the way it does in specific ways. Like it goes in depth about why film has a certain look and why certain directors, for instance, Christopher Nolan will only use film. That's he's, he's one of the last few to prefer film. Um, I believe Quentin Tarantino also prefers film. Um, actually, funny, funny story about Quentin Tarantino. When he released the, um, uh, what was it, The Hateful Eight, I believe it was. When he released The Hateful Eight, he released it on uh, IMAX, and it was in film. And I went to see it in Toronto, and they had one of the film canisters there. And I kid you not, the film canister, I'm six foot one. The film canister was almost up to my shoulders, and it was about four feet wide. Like, this thing was huge. It was massive. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are going away from the film from film is because it's just so big. It's so hard. The editing process, you have to film it all and then you edit it later and you look at dailies. And a lot of people find that time consuming and just it takes up too much time of the filming. Whereas with digital, you can record it, edit, and you can view it pretty much right there. But what's great about this documentary is, again, you're seeing the in-depth about not only of where film came from, why it's used, why it lasted so long, and how it can be used well with certain films. Just like a lot of techniques out there, using film doesn't necessarily mean your film is better or that it's going to look better. It's just going to have a different look that fits your movie. I've seen a lot of movies in digital that just almost look too clean, whereas you go back and you look films that are set in film, and it's it's got that grittiness, it's got that ruggedness that you appreciate. And and if it's done well, it enhances it enhances your viewing of the film. And Keanu Reeves goes around and he interviews uh, specific people in the film film industry, and they talk about why they love it, why they prefer one way or the other, um, what's changing, what do they want to see, what has happened. And it's a fantastic documentary that 
If you get the chance, find it and go watch it. The second one on my list is probably one of my favorite ones because if you've listened to podcasts before, I talk a lot about how much a score means to me at times. Like the theme song to Magnificent Seven is just, I think, one of the greatest pieces of music I've ever heard. Uh, Everybody, when they talk about John Williams, they talk about, you know, Superman and Star Wars and Harry Potter. But for me, his stepmom, I know, right? Stepmom theme song, I think is hauntingly beautiful. And when he did the theme for Catch Me If You Can, and it goes away from what he traditionally does, it may, I, I, I prefer that almost over a lot of his more famous ones. But the documentary that I'm talking about is called Score, a, Few, a Film Music Documentary. And what this does is, just as it says, it's a documentary that talks about scores through the history of film, where it came to be, what happened back in the original days when there was no score and there was no music to, to a film. So you had to have a piano player in the theater playing along with with the films. And then it transitioned into being able to record the the music onto the film and how important the music was to the film because there was no there was no voices everyone once in a while while you saw a title card that explained what the um, actors and actresses were saying but the music set the mood for a lot of those films and then later on when you got into the 30s and the 40s and everything started to become big epic orchestras you know movies like Spartacus and Ben-Hur Gone with the Wind everything was like an 80 piece orchestra and it was huge it was bombastic And then as you started to get into the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, things started to slow down a bit and things were going to more synthesized music, a lot more technical music, um, a lot more music like pop music and... uh, Top 40 was, were used in films more, more often then because they can um, evoke a sense of time period. So you hear a lot of, you don't hear, too, you know, in the 80s films, when you have coming-of-age films in the 80s, you don't hear a lot of scores. You hear more soundtracks. And it's because those soundtracks help set the mood for the 80s. But then when the 90s started and now in the 2000s, you started seeing a resurgence in orchestra music with the likes of, um, you know, obviously John Williams, Danny Elfman. Um, you have people like Hans Zimmer who have combined um, electrical and um, orchestra mu- music. You have people like Howard Shore. You have uh, some of the the uh, more older ones, Jerry Goldsmith, that um, Ennio Morricone. Um, that were great at what they did. And this documentary tracks the scores and the film industry. And also what's interesting about this film is a lot of times when you see a score and you're and um, you, th- they show you how they created a sound and you thought, wait a minute, I didn't even realize like, that's how they created the sound. They show you instruments that are instruments that you've never seen before. You've never even heard of. You don't even know what it would do. But when it's incorporated into a score, you start to remember, oh, so that's where that sounds. And those instruments are some of the, the most recognizable parts of, of, the, of uh, theme songs because it's so unique compared to everything else. And it's a beautiful do- do- documentary that really goes in, in depth about um, music and scores. And I think if you get a chance, again, 
watch that. My next one is called Casting By. This is one that probably not as many people know about because I just happened across it one day on Netflix. And I was thinking, oh, okay, you know what? I'll give this a chance. And it's a documentary about casting directors. And it is one of the most interesting behind-the-scenes documentaries I've ever seen. You hear about casting directors, but a lot of us don't fully know what they are. And when you watch this and you see how important they are and how integral they are to a film, you have a, a different sense when you see, you have a different respect when you see the, ter- the, the title casting by on a film. And it's incredible just how many actors would not have been around, would been around because of um, casting directors directors who who said uh you know what they may have failed but i'm going to give him another chance one of the best stories in the film is about john voight how his first role he bombed and he tanked and he was ready he was he had a ticket i believe and he was almost about to get on the bus to head back home and he would have never been an an, an actor again um until one casting director said you know what give me one one more chance give me one more opportunity found a role and his career took off from there and what's incredible about casting directors and what you learn, learn from this is you may have the best actors in the world, you may have the best writers in the world, you may have the best director in the world, but if they don't have chemistry, it doesn't matter how good the writing is, it doesn't matter how good the direct directing is, you will notice it, you will see it. There's a reason why um, there are people that have worked together so many times. I mean, going back to the earlier Judy Garland and um, Mickey Rooney, because they had great chemistry and they worked well together. And the reason why they started that was because a casting director found two individuals and thought these two would work. This person may be better, a better actor, but these two paired together will produce a better result. And that's what makes you look at films completely di- differently um, because you you start to imagine, oh, that's true. Like what happens if this person was in um, a different movie than this? Or And then you start start hearing rumors about who was who were who were up for for a film, but they passed um, or they did didn't do it and, for whatever reason. And a different person came, came in, did the role, did a fantastic role. And then you think the reason why that happened was because there was a casting director who picked that person, along with obviously the director, and it was magic because casting directors are very much people that have to see um, they have to they have to look at the long term of a movie um, a little bit more than most most p people and with the debate going on right now about the oscars adding in the best popular film but casting directors still don't have have a an oscar is talked about in this and it's talked about really well and you also hear a lot about why they don't why the whole push of not having a category is because of the direct director's guild and a lot of people probably don't know about this i didn't know about this that casting that the director's guild hate the term casting director because they don't see them as actual directors 
And they talk about this kind of back and forth and this feud about being called a casting director versus a director. And it's a very interesting feud that you you never thought happened because you always thought like everybody worked together to create these films. And then you see this and you're like, wait a minute, like your people, like just call them one thing. Like who cares if it's, if, if, if they're called casting directors, but the directors guild really care more than I actually thought. So casting by, if you is definitely one to worth seeing. Now the next one is called creature design, the Frankenstein uh, concept. I think it's called the Fra- Frankenstein concept. Um, it's the one that I saw the new, the uh, earliest or the latest, I guess, because I only I saw it about a week or two, two ago. And what's really cool about this one is it talks about um, practical effects and makeup artistry in the in the film industry, um, and where it's come and where it is. And they they don't just talk about like little films; they talk about every like the big films. They talk about. Um, the horror film genres, the big films like Star Wars, the big films like Jurassic Park. Yes, the little films uh, as well. They talk talk about those like Critters and and movies such as that. But what's interesting about this is again, it's another part of the film industry that not a lot of people talk about or people know about, like what it takes to create these monsters and these characters and and their characters all on their own like the one one story i always knew about was how well the two was one how hard it was for job of the hut in star wars return of the jedi to happen because it had to have three people inside controlling them and it was it was a it was a it was a so hard for them to be able to do that and then you had the the next biggest story that most people know about is bruce the um the uh shark in jaws how it kept failing because of the salt water and the salt water was affecting their gears so spielberg had to kind of show less of the shark because it just was breaking down all all the time so you hear these stories but you don't hear about the people that create these and what i like about this film as well is they talk about the move from digital to um or from uh, practical to digital and what happened at at, at at that point and who are some of the big uh people around that time um and you learn a lot that you didn't know before and you learn a lot about the people and what it happens and and they're a tight-knit group and i think that's what i find the most interesting is they're a tight-knit group they're close they all know each other they all work well together and unlike other professions they kind of help each other out a lot and they promote each other and it's interesting to see just what it takes to create these creatures and how important it is to get the story right one of the stories they talk about in it, which is a great story, was the bug from the first Men in Black. It was supposed to be practical. It was practical all the way up until like the day they were supposed to shoot. Uh, and then they said, no, sorry, it doesn't look like a bug enough. We'll just do it as a C- CG. And they created this entire massive um, bug that they just didn't end up using at all. Um, they also talk about stop motion and why stop motion was such a huge innovative and, and how it came 
apart and or how it came um how it came to be and where it was now obviously stop motion didn't have as big of a of a impact as other part part parts of this but you got to see um the people that again you see you you hear them about special effects for or um you know when you think of special effects you think of digital spe- special effects you forget that makeup design and practical effects are just as important and how hard like incredibly hard some of these are to do i had no idea how hard it was for them to do the changing scene in an american werewolf in paris like when we're watching it you're just thinking like that's really cool but then when they talk about this and they just, and they explain just how hard it was to be able to do you you watch these scenes with a different eye and again a more appreciative eye and that that that's why i think especially if you're a big fan of um, bonus features in DVDs, behind the scenes, commentaries, and things like that, this is a great one um, to watch. And it's a great one to learn a little bit more because I don't think it gets talked about enough. The next one on my list is Corman's World. Now, um, this is a doc- documentary about Roger Corman, who is the king of B-movies. Uh, him and Lloyd called Kaufman, but I think Corman is... is more he's been doing it for a while and the reason why i I sought this out was because i never watched a corman movie before um i knew about his movies i knew that they were made on cheap um and they and they would usually make a lot of their money back if most of the time but they were made cheap um and i knew about his movies i knew about you know b movies and corman movies but what i didn't know was how many of the biggest stars in the film industry came from these movies and started in these movies. I mean, Ron Howard's first directorial de- debut was a core Corman movie. One of Scorsese's first direct directorial movies was a Corman movie. Jack Nicholson started in Corman movies. It's just absolutely mind-blowing how many of these big stars started in these Corman movies. And what is interesting about this film is it shows you the love that somebody has that they're not in it to make a lot of money. They're just in it to make fun and interesting films. And I think that needs to be talked about more more often. And what this also shows is the concept of honing your craft. And I think that's something that doesn't happen nowadays. Um, I think with a lot of movies today, you don't, you, you don't see a lot of actors or actresses sort of starting at the bottom and building their way up. Uh, you know, you get a lot of, because everybody's trying to find the new hot, fresh breakout Outstar. Everybody wants to find the next big thing before anybody else. You forget to have these new actors and actresses build and hone their craft in these low-budget films and these smaller films. And I think that's why some of these people were able to last as long as they did was because they took the time to go in the in in these smaller movies and again hone their craft to build their material 
bacterial practice. Fail sometimes, but co- come back. And when they were making it in the big time, they had a better appreciation of what they were doing because they knew how hard it was. And they knew that when they were making movies for the first 10 years of their career, they were living on somebody's couch or they had to have a roommate with somebody else because they couldn't couldn't afford to live. And that's what Corman's world really go goes through. And it talks about the beginning of people's careers and also the love that one man has for the film and industry. And it's admirable to see how much he stuck to his guns and how much he decided, no, I'm not going to follow the trend. I'm going to continue along with what I'm, I'm going to do what I do and I'm, and I'm going to have fun with it. And kudos to him because, um, he made it work and he made it work a lot better than I think most people can. I think the biggest thing you're seeing similar to that now is you're seeing, uh, like Blumhouse, uh, Blumhouse does a lot of low-budget horror movies that um, require, that have to have great story and great acting because they don't have the money to hide it behind special effects. Uh, and, you know, you saw that for a while with Lloyd Kaufman's films with, you know, to- Toxic Avenger um, and, thing, and, and movies such as that that have created a cult film. And cult films don't happen as much or as often these days because everything is so easily accessible to people that you that you don't need to go hunting and finding these but he was a pine he was definitely corman was definitely a pioneer in the film industry that i don't i don't think people know how important he was to what the film industry is today um because of what he did and what he was able to do and it's a fascinating story that's really interesting the next one we're going to talk about is called De Palma now similar to Corman's world I knew about Brian De Palma I knew about his films I've seen Scarface I've, I've seen Mission Impossible but I didn't know a lot about him I didn't know a lot about um, his movies his life what he did um, and I didn't realize how much of a dark mindset he had when he was making his films and again similar to Corman here's a guy that did it his way for so long tried to do the studio system wasn't happy left and went back to doing the films he likes and again he's a director that um, you know was part of he was part of the gang of the 80s that changed cinema you know you've got De Palma Coppola Lucas Spielberg um and there was and and Scorsese the kind of fab five that took down the old guard in the 70s um and were the talk of the town they were the big directors you know if if their name was on a film and then obviously Oliver Stone as well during that time uh, but they were all friends and these were the guy these were the guys that basically ran Hollywood for a while and we all know about George Lucas we all know about Spielberg we all know about Scorsese but guys like De Palma and Coppola 
don't get talked about a lot and we don't know about about their films and De Palma is an interesting figure as well uh, just his life and his backstory of where he came and why he makes the films he does and I think that's what's interesting is he makes the films the way they are because of what he knows and because of of uh, his life so every time you see a film that is directed by him there's a part of him in it there's a part of his past in it that it came from something that there, that there's a specific reason why he's doing this and he's a fascinating man he's a fascinating individual that again i didn't know a lot about his career but after seeing it it made me want to go out and watch more of his films because of how he explained it and how he promoted his films and how he talked about why he created his films the way he did and he's an individual that again doesn't get talked about a lot um but if you get the chance i think you should see de palma um because it's very well made as well and he's an interesting figure that uh, that again i think we should see more more of him if we can and the next film on our list is we're talking about Spielberg, the documentary about the man, the myth, the legend, one of the top five, top ten, depending on, on, on your list, directors of all time, an individual that has made some of the greatest movies of all time, one of the, some of the um, most beloved movies of all time. And this is a movie that, this is a documentary that I think was, was, it was bound to happen. It happened, I think, at the right time. And again, it talks about a man who, um, similar to De Palma, when he creates a film, he puts part of his life into film. And he makes the decisions and the choices about his film because of where he came in. Um, one of the best stories about this film is when he decided to direct The Color Purple. Um, nobody thought, like, Spielberg, like, what are you doing? This is a guy that makes, like, popcorn films and big-budget blockbusters. And I think he was just coming off E.T. And now he's doing The Color Purple, a movie about um, black slaves. And, you th- and like, like, why he transitioned in, into this. Um, and then he did it a few years, and then he did it a few years later, when in the same year, I mean, this guy put out Schindler's List and Jurassic Park like six months apart. In the same year, he put out those two movies. That's incredible. I don't think any other di- director could do that. I don't think any other di- director could jump from dinosaur action blockbuster to black and white Holocaust film. And be able to do them with such appreciation and such love. And, I mean, just by going through his filmography when they're doing this. And it's, I mean, the man, the man can't, can do no wrong. Um, yeah, he's got some missteps here and there, but I think everybody does. But it's more interesting to hear about why he chose specific films what he did like empire of the sun as well and again color purple schindler's list why he chose these films when he was known as the blockbuster king you know he did one of the best sci one of the best sci-fi directors um of all time 
you know, obviously E.T. and then Close Encounters of the Third Kind, some movies that will last forever. And just by watching it, again, it's a long one. It's probably the longest one on here because I think it runs just over two and a half hours. But it goes by in a flash because every time they talk about a new new movie, you're like, yeah, I love that movie. Oh, we're ta- talking about this one? Yeah, I love that movie. I love that movie too. And I believe it was on HBO. So it should be fairly ready for people to um, see it. So if you get get the chance against Spielberg, definitely worth a watch. Next one, we're talking about Jodorowsky's Dune. Now, if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I apologize. This is a director that I want... I've, I've never seen his, his other films. I know of El Topo and I know of The Holy Mountain. I know that he, I think he did one other one, but I've never seen any of his movies. I'm interested to see them. But this, this documentary talks about just the bananas and the bonkers version that he was going to create of the movie Dune. Like, I don't, after seeing this, you want to start a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter and and just give him your money because the ambition and the ideas this man has of creating this, it he paints a picture of one of the most interesting, crazy sci-fi looking movies of all time. I mean, yes, David Lynch ended up um, creating this or, or making a, a version of it himself. But this man just had ideas that were off the wall that if anybody else was describing it, you would think, not a chance. This isn't going to work. What are you talking about? This is crazy. This is crazy. This is too much. But the way he sells it and the way he ties everything together and the visuals they use, this movie would have been something to see. And when after you watch it, you also start pick. You also start putting together that he had ideas that other people ended up doing later on. But he was talking about them for for his film way before others did. Like you don't understand how ahead of his time he was until you watch this and you see. Oh, this movie ended up doing that this movie ended up doing that this movie ended up doing that and when if he was the first one to do all of these combined this movie would have been incredible and the passion he has and the love he has and the story about how he was getting it and how close they were to be able to doing this i mean they had production designs they had actors they had studio they had so much and they just couldn't get it done and it's a shame because this movie could have been one of the best sci-fi movies of all time. Now, I know that in concept, a lot of movies work well. I mean, there's a lot of movies out there that um, in, the, in the pitching room, they pitch it really well, and it sounds really good. But sometimes when you put it on, when you turn um, words to pictures, they don't translate as well as you would think they would. But this movie here, you believe that they could have done something special. And you wish, you wish that this is one of those movies that you hear about that never end up happening, that it actually happened, or maybe down the road, 
somebody is going to re- reuse it. I mean, Denis Villeneuve is going to be remaking is going is going to be doing his ver- version of Dune, and after seeing this documentary, I'm hoping that he's seen this and he takes some of those ideas into into the film and just updates them, modernizes them, because. Jesus, this movie was going to be something. Again, this movie makes me want to go and watch El Topo and the Holy Mountain. And I know there are people out there who will say, well, they're great movies. You you should see it anyways. But I wouldn't even have known about them unless I was seeing this. And from a mo- and my interest in seeing his, I'm interested in seeing his, his other movies based off of only hearing about this movie because I want to see what he actually did because... If this is the concepts and the ideas he came up with, I want to see what he actually is able to accomplish because this movie would have been incredible and the journey is so great to to enjoy and watch. And my next one on the list, number nine, we're almost at the end, is Waking Sleeping Beauty. Again, this is a movie that I've never heard of until I saw a, a, a YouTuber talk about it and I thought, wait a minute, a documentary about Disney Animation Studios during the 80s and the early 90s? How have I not known about this? And wow, we know nothing. We're like Jon Snow. We know nothing. We think of Disney Animation back then as, um, you know, the great, the great Mouse Detective, uh, Oliver and Company, Little Mermaid, Aladdin... Lion King, and we think they were untouchable. But you have no idea how close they were to being bankrupt. How close they, how close we were to never having three of the greatest animated movies of all time. Again, Aladdin, Lion King, Little Mermaid. Because this company was borderline going to be shut down. They were moved to a completely different section of Disney. They were moved off the Disney lot because they didn't think they were going to last. And the story of the creators and the ideas and the pitches and and who came in and the feuding between Michael Eisner and the individual, I forgot his name, who took over uh, the Disney Animation Studio and the feuding and the fighting between this. You also see a very young Tim Burton, which I thought was really cool. Um, I didn't know that Tim Burton was a Disney animator when he was uh, before he was a f- filmmaker, so that was really fun to see and really cool. And it it explains now um, why D- Disney produced um, the Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas um, because he kind of had an in, and um, so it makes it makes a lot more sense about where that movie came from and why it happened because it's such a unique film. But this story, um, the characters, the actors, how close they were, um, what happened behind the scenes during the creation, how much the Black Cauldron was supposed to save that company, and then it was just a disaster, and it didn't make back any amount of money where it was supposed to, um, was just, it's a story that I think more people should hear about, and more people should know about, because it's crazy it's um it's it's one hell of a ride and i think if you get the chance definitely see it and definitely watch it i mean watch all of these but um especially if you're a disney fan or an animator or a fan of animation um 
this is one that I think you need to see because it talks about, again, one of the changing of the guards when uh, things happened. Because, I mean, the 80s was Don Bluth. Don Bluth was the king of the 80s when it came to animation. Like, Disney just couldn't do anything. Um, And then again, Little Mermaid saved Disney animation. And now we're here. And now uh, things are the way they are because of that mermaid. So God bless her. And God bless that Prince Eric. Now, the last one on my list, and this one I specifically saved for the end because even though this list was, wasn't was ranked, this is one of my top five, if not top three favorite movies of all time. I could watch this movie. Like, I love Star Wars. I talk about Star Wars. I talk about... I could watch this movie more than Star Wars. And I've seen Star Wars a million times, but I could watch this movie. And this is called Life Itself. And it's a documentary and biography of Roger Ebert. And the reason why I love this movie so much is because it tells the story of an individual and a life that I dreamt of. Like, I wanted to live this life almost exactly of how it was done. I mean, minus the, dr- the, the drinking, but he lived a life and he had... His story is exactly what, when I started to fall in love with movies, it was the story that I wanted, I wanted. It was the life I wanted to live, um, you know, and it, part of it, I'm, I'm, I'm living the life, you know, I'm not talking, you know, I'm not a movie reviewer, um, but I am talking about movies, um, you know, similar to him, um, I haven't been in, in a relationship. Uh, I've had like one relationship. I'm not married. I'm in my thirties. I don't have any kids, things like that. Um, so it's, it's, and that's where, that's where it hits me the most because of the parallels that I see in my life. And I see what I wanted in my life growing up and what I wanted as an adult. Um, but what's also great is, um, Again, the love this man has for, for, for films. And I think that is what is not love of films, but I think what's mi- missing in films these days and what's missing in a lot of things these days is the articulation of, of not necessarily articulation, but like the concept of you may not like something, but it's okay. And rather than saying why it's trash and why it's garbage and why you hate it, come up with ideas that could have made it better so instead of instead of saying this movie is bad because of this say this movie could have been better if they tried this and when you and that's what he used to do he used to put a positive he used to put more of a positive now he does have reviews where he tore into people but what he did was he explained the reason the reasoning behind it so when the filmmakers read it and they saw it they were mad at him, yes, but they understood him because he was not only reviewing films, he was educating people about films. You could you could read all of Richard Ebert's reviews and it would be like taking a class in film studies because of what he does, how he explains, um, how he breaks things down, how he explains scenes, how he explains a film, why things are the way they, why the things are the way they are why the reason why you're feeling uncomfortable at this point um and it's a journey that 
after I watch this movie, I cry at the end of this movie all the time because he's just such an important figure in the film industry and, and, and film history. He, him and him and Cisco. And that's, that's probably one of the best parts about this film is the relationship between him and Gene Siskel and, um, how much they fought each other. They, they at times hated each other. They butted heads so many times, but the fact that they needed, they needed each other. That's why this film works so well is because it's not just a documentary about a, about a movie reviewer. It's a documentary about a human being who loved the movies and how the movies impacted his life. And it's something that I think a lot of, a lot of people, if you're ever thinking of going into film, whether it be a, refi- a film reviewer or making films, I think this is one of those m- movies that I think you need to see um, because I think it helps put your dream in perspective and gives you a better understanding of what you need to be looking for um, when you are pursuing this, why you're pursuing this, what traps there are that that, that could happen. And Roger Ebert is still one of the the best if one one of the best people that if you can go back and read his films if you're ever going to watch an old film after after you watch the film read one of his reviews and don't read it to see if you agree with it read it to see his point of view and his mind mindset and that's what was great another reason why roger ebert was great was because you didn't read his reviews to see well should i go see this movie i don't know let me see what R- roger ebert says and did he like it sure i'll go see it did he not, not like it uh, then I, I won't see it he broke down films and he educated you about the film so even after you saw it whether you liked it or not you can still read his reviews and get a new idea, something that you missed, so that so which will make you want to go watch it again. And when you watch it again, you'll have a new focus point when why 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 watching the film. And I think that's what's great, and that's what's missing in a lot of today's film film reviewers is there's too much noise. There's just too much yelling and screaming, and I hate this, and I love this, and if you don't like this, then I don't like you, and you're stupid, and and all this stuff. And a lot of these people aren't taking the time to break down the film and look at it as a piece of art and seeing what works, what doesn't work, what could have been, what could have happened. Um, and and that's what I think is is missing in, in reviews. And when you watch this, you also look, after you watch this, you also, you can't look at reviews reviews the same way way anymore because after hearing what he has to say about a film you start looking at other people's reviews and you think you have you're just scratching the surface um that's one of the reasons why i don't look at raw i look at rotten tomatoes as just a curiosity but i never look at rotten tomatoes to help me decide whether i'm going to go see a film or not never because that's all sur- because that's all surface and a lot of reviewers just look at the surface they don't look at the the internal parts of the film like Roger Ebert does and i'm i actually hope that even though he wasn't as big as 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 Ebert i would love to see an opposite documentary about Gene Siskel's life um because again i didn't know a lot about him um i mean this movie i mean this podcast is the title of it, Mets 
at the movies was highly influenced by Siskel and Ebert at the movies. And um, like clearly it was highly influenced because um, they were some of the best. And you get that when you watch it and you get a better understanding of reviewers, of, of how to do a review, how to read a review and how to look at movies. And again, I think anybody who's a film lover, I think you need to see this. Even if you're not a fan of Roger Ebert, look at what he added to this world and added to the film industry. Um, and when you have somebody like Mar- Martin Scorsese who says, yeah, he really tore me down in that review, but I understood why, and he was right. When you have a filmmaker who says a reviewer was right, you've made it. That's that's you know what you're talking and you know what you're doing and people need to listen more to what you have to say. So that is my special episode about 10 documentaries about the film industry that I think everybody should watch. Again, there's a lot of them out there. Some of you are saying, well, how come you haven't seen this? What about this? What about this? Of course, I want to see all of them. This is just my list of 10. I'd be interested in hearing what are some of your fa- favorites, um, what you'd like to see more of. And if you have any suggestions for movies for me to talk about, you can always contact me at Mets at the Movies on Twitter. And I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and I will see you at the next screening. Mm-hmm.